Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. In today's episode, an ornamental grasses special, I travel to a garden literally just down the road from me, Knoll Gardens near Wimborne, where I speak to Neil Lucas, one of the world's leading grass experts, about his collection of grasses within the beautiful garden. We talk about everything you could possibly need to know about grasses, where to grow them, how to maintain them and how to get the best from them. Beth Chatto always said that just because you've got a small place, you should not necessarily use small plants. Mm. One or two simple plants used boldly is far more effective and satisfying than a greater number of small ones. And whilst we were recording the episode, they were practising for the Bournemouth Air Show, so we had everything buzzing above us at some point or another. Well, I've just arrived at the beautiful Knoll Gardens, parked the car and just going to walk in now. So I'm often here to have a poke around, see how the garden's developing during the course of the year. And just going into the entrance now, weather's well, it's warm and it's cloudy, but the sun is trying to come out and I've just walked in and I'm just going off now to find Neil in the garden somewhere. Thank you so much for inviting me along to your beautiful Knoll Gardens today. Lucky me, it's right on my doorstep, so I'm a regular here for inspiration and just to come and soak it all in. Thank you. (laughs) It's a pleasure, and a pleasure. Always good to see you. And how long have you been here now? Well, I know you wouldn't think so from looking at me, but it's about 27 and a half years now. Oh, my goodness me. So I can no longer call it the new project, really. (laughs) You're no longer the new kid on the um, the grass Not really. Not new anything these days, I'm afraid, apart from the knee, of course. That's that's new. So when did your passion for gardening and plants actually start? That's a good question. Um, I think my earliest memories are really going down to see my grandfather for my summer holidays and he would go primarily delphiniums. He'd be into his veg and and, and dahlias. One of my first jobs was to um, empty the upturned terracotta pots full of paper to get the earwigs out. (laughs) And that was the time when the dahlias were taller than I was, if you (laughs) know what I mean. So that's a long time ago. But he grew delphiniums from memory, two and a half, three thousand of them. Goodness me. literally stop traffic in the road when we were out. And he used to hire a lorry and go and exhibit at the RHS shows. And I sometimes think my love of showing, you know, Mm. plants in general, stems from around that time. Goodness me. And grasses, when did grasses come into your life then? Good question. I'm not quite sure. Um, I've always been a trees and shrubs man, so woody plants has always been my prime interest, you know, which is why I love this place. Yeah. Um, and I think at some point when I was working for the Health Trust down in Devon, I started to find that grasses next to woody plants were present in the landscape for as long as, so they were really useful plants. So, you know, it's not any roses that grow on you. I sort of get one and two and three and four. And when I came here, we probably had a collection of about 50. But at that time, when when we came to Knoll, I had no intention of becoming a grass specialist as such. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. 
And here we are now with this beautiful... We have a little bit of a reputation for knowing something just about Just a little bit. Yes, you do. I was just going to say, somebody's told me you know a thing or two about grasses. That was probably us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or maybe it was actually Neil, yeah. Well, I'm here and so many of my listeners have contacted me. I've done three plant specials now and grass is the one that they've been calling out for. People want to know how to grow them, where to grow them, how to look after them to get the best from them, planting companions. So I wondered today if we could have a wander around the garden, have a look at some of those particular areas and look at some examples of grasses and planting companions that we can use in them. I'd be at my absolute pleasure. I always enjoy walking around the garden talking about it rather than working in it. <laughs> so how many people talking about working in it have you got working in the garden? You've got we your... have one full-time gardener, Luke, in Goodness four acres, me. which is not a lot. No. Um, but we also have a charity associated with the gardens. And so we have Friday morning volunteers, which can be up to about a dozen who are here for a few hours. So at a guess, it's about one and a half full-time equivalents, to use a phrase, um, which is not a lot over the four acres that, that we've got here. But it's immaculately manicured, well, I don't know really. Immaculate. Well, we, we hide the weeds during the open hours, if you know what I mean. <laughs> or we the reclassify <laughs> them as natives. You know, there, there's several ways of doing it. Right um, plant, right place. Exactly. But I think if we weren't a genuinely low maintenance approach, I, I, I start. I, I, the style I like is what I call naturalistic, and I think that is a a low maintenance low impact approach and i think if we didn't actually practice that then there is no way that we would be able to manage something like this mm. on those staff levels okay well we're in the gravel dry gravel area yep. at the moment so talk me through I, I can see a sea of gora scabious you've got some beautiful plants here so what sort of plants and grasses will cope well with dry gravelly conditions okay well i think the first thing i should say really and come clean is is that when i first planted this area i intended having the grasses and the perennials in discrete mounds with gravel showing and as you can see, like most of my planting plans, that hasn't happened. <laughs> we have a sort of a, a mass of colour of plants, which I've actually let do. So you can hardly see the gravel during the summer months, mm. um, but the plants are so exuberant. Um, and of course, that helps with low maintenance. So if we're looking at grasses, we, we are facing sun, we are dry, we are sunny. It very seldom gets watered. We don't refuse to water, but we water seldom. Uh, and we are in a bit of a dry rain shadow during the summer months. Hasn't rained here worthwhile for several weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, Steeper gigantia, for example, on the left there, a little bit shorter than usual, but those fabulous oat-like flowers that arrive in April and May. Um, we've got Arunda donax over the back, a little bit further, if you can just see over the scabious. We've got Calamagrostis brachytrica. We've got Poa labelladeri, brilliant name. There's another mm. panicum, one called Sea Mist, that we've just launched this year. There's a panicum here called Warrior, one or two more Calamagrostis, um, and some more Erogrostis, and another Arundodonax, and more Steepers over there. So they are all sun lovers, um, and backed up by what is only a relatively small number of different plants but the gora and the scabious we let basically do their thing i think is the phrase and i think that's what gives such impact as you say less species but larger number of plants to give that impact Impact, yeah when i was young it was always very difficult to understand what less is more mm. means but this is what it means you know i mean if you look at that scabious for example um if you can see beyond the bees you know, it, there must be, I don't know, I'm not going to count, but there must be thousands and thousands of flowers, mm. which means that it's never not effective because there's so many flowers. If you've only got one plant of so many different varieties, if the flowering stops for a day or so, you lose the, the effect. 
with a bigger mass of fewer plants, you tend to have the effect for so long. The butterflies over there, they're just absolutely stunning. beautiful. And, and they just look after themselves and we chop them down in the early spring and basically we let them get on and they do it again uh, for another 12 months, which is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love that effect of bit like an editor hence the naturalistic style you know we do something when we have to yeah but we don't interfere unless something needs doing and with the grasses nice sizable clumps to give you impact again same old story you know if you've got a small backyard it's a little bit different from perhaps a bigger planting here but it is that simple effect and and to take up on that particular point i think right um beth chatto always said that just because you've got a small place you should not necessarily use small plants mm. one or two simple plants used boldly is far more effective and satisfying yeah. than a greater number of small ones and i see you've got the arundo sort of like specimens pieces of arundo just to give it height added interest and structure yes i, I i'm not quite sure how the macrophylla ca came about uh, uh, it, it, it's a beautiful thing yeah i think it, it, it just rises something that rises as an accent or if you're being very fashionable we now call them emergence oh emergence 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 is the phrase right uh, i have to remember moment. that one yeah, yeah um so i tend to call it accent still because i'm not that fashionable <laughs> but emergent so you have this wonderful planting and then every now and again something pokes its nose up like the steeper the arundo or even the vivascum which mm. seed themselves i yeah. mean we, we've had nothing to do with that and there's one or two they're still just flowering so um beautiful i think so you talked about watering you will water if you need to yeah, um, I, I mean, here in the UK, generally, water is not an issue, you know, particular uh, uh, times or weeks or, or areas. But where we are, we are in a dry spot, but water is not an issue generally. No. Um, we are therefore low water use, but it's a bit like maintenance. We don't say there's no maintenance, but there's low maintenance. Yes. So we don't yeah. not water ever, uh, but we don't have to water very often. Often. And, and I think that's what we need to think about a bit, um, is that you know, it's not no, it's less. And of course, with climate change and our changing weather systems, sunny one minute, raining the next, warm, cold, grasses cope well with that situation. Well, probably better than the gardener, I think, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I do know um, what you mean. Yeah, yeah. generally, and I, it's always a bit difficult when people say, well, let's plant for climate change. Well, as climate is changing, you don't quite know what to plant if you know what I mean so what you're mm. really looking for is good quality plants that cope with a wide range of conditions and in your book designing with grasses you say that arguably grasses are the most successful group of plants why is that is that because of their adaptability yeah I, I, um, they are so adaptable I think you will find not that other groups of plants aren't of course but I think it was um, David Attenborough who said that they actually cover more of the earth's surface than any other single group of plants that's oh, wow. how successful they are um, they are very adaptable you find them in just about every kind of climatic zone every kind of condition mm. um, and of course, I mean, we, you know, the human beings, we, I think, I'm not quite sure exactly what the, what the figures are, but it's something like two thirds of the world's population lives off seven species of grass, rice, wheat, maize. Of so course. It, when you think about it, it is a massive group, um, both to our, uh, us and also yeah. to the planet in, in general. How many species of grass 
are there? Ooh, well, we tend to talk about 9,000-ish, not okay. that I've ever counted them. Yes. Um, and then people are always adding one or two more. And that is the true grasses. Uh, although we call ourselves a grass specialist, we obviously grow carexes and sedges, which botanically are not grasses, grasses yeah. but they're grass allies, so we add them into you know gardening terms. And there's 4,000 or so species of those plus. So you okay. are talking about 12, 13, 14, 15,000 odd species. Only, I think, if I remember correctly, it's only the orchids that have are more numerous in terms of species than okay. the family of grasses. So geographically, mm-hmm. are you able to pinpoint where in the world they might be, where the largest proportion of grasses might be, or is that difficult because there are so many thousands of well, them? Well, I, I was going to say, in some ways it's rather easy, because wherever you go, there's almost certainly going to be a grass. Okay. I mean, you might not find it in the Arctic, admittedly. Yeah. Um, but if you think of all the steps, the plains, the pampas, mm. it's all grass. Yeah, you know? of course. Uh, um, uh, and so almost wherever you go, um, you will find grasses. And I, perhaps that's one of the rules that I've learned when it comes to using them in a garden situation, um, you do need to be a little bit appropriate for the kind of conditions you're growing. They're actually them in. growing them in. Right plant, right place is mm-hmm. an important mantra for any plant. Absolutely. How does that apply to grasses? We've, we've, we've also touched on cat, um, on rushes and sedges. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, uh, for example, um, when if you're growing camellias or, or hydrangeas, you know you know what's important is the acid soil or the, the alkaline soil, mm. etc. With grasses, what I found is it's the amount of sun or shade and wet and dry in the soil. And those are the two most important factors okay. when choosing and selecting for your particular area. Um, and obviously, you know, what counts as sun or shade in California is going to be a little bit different from what counts as sun or shade over here in the UK. So there's constant variation. But as you rightly said, that applies to any plant group. OK. The other thing I was going to pick up on, we've, we've talked about right plant, right place. But the other thing with Noel is you've got a beautiful backdrop. We mentioned earlier mm-hmm. your love of woody plants and trees. Mm-hmm. got a lovely backdrop of trees. I can see there's a beautiful cornice in front of us. Um, just gives it such a lovely feel i think it it does two things one i was first attracted to the garden um it was john may who did the original plantings he was a plantsman that's sadly no longer with us um but he was a great plantsman and he planted lots of the biggest plants you see there's a huge uh, willow oak behind us here and if you think this is a carrot field we're standing on and that has only been in the ground since 1970 it's quite incredible so i have been incredibly lucky to have had this background this mature backdrop of plants to work against and the second part of that is that um, although you know we always talk about grasses, that's what we're doing this afternoon, mm. grasses fit with all the other plants that we garden with. They're not a replacement for shrubs and other things. No. They are additions too. And I, I like to think that the garden is reasonably successful because it uses all the layers, the woody plants, the grasses, the perennials, the bulbs, etc. And I think that's the thing, again, being familiar with the garden, when you come here, it's not just a sea of grasses there is so much more but those grasses do fit into that those borders just beautifully they just lend something else uh, an air of i don't know translucency um it's quite ephemeral this this border in front of us with the yeah. gora and the scabious just perfect it, it, it's um 
I think that's a really important point too is you know that they are so great for design they have a set of qualities for us gardeners you know yes they're easy to use and they're beautiful um, but they cope so well they move in the wind they can act as informal screens you know they're present for most of the year blah 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 mm. um, they do so many good good things you know why would you not use such an adaptable beautiful and successful group of plants as part of our planting palette the other thing we're in a, a dry gravelly area at the moment and as you say the soil here is quite sandy a lot of people have asked about growing grasses in clay mm -hmm. can it be done are there specific grasses that will grow well in that sort of soil do you need to improve the soil yeah uh, as a general rule um, we don't really worry about um, about improving the soil is a very general thing um, you know garden soils tend to be fairly rich as far as grasses are concerned and mm. they're not like dahlias they don't need lots of feeding no um, as to clay um, certainly some confirmed sun love I think what's important about the clay is if it sits winter wet so every soil when it rains can sit wet for a day or so mm. and get mm. little puddles on and yeah. all the rest of it if it sits for a week or so that's effectively waterlogged and the problem with many plants is that they are particularly grasses they will not cope particularly the sun lovers they do not cope with that wetness in soil but if it's just a clay soil an average clay soil you know that is dried out during the summer you know Cambridgeshire clay London clay that kind of thing um, grasses grow pretty much as well on there as they do in a sandy soil the problem with the sandy soil in fact is that it dries out so quickly, quickly. And it's fairly poor a clay soil is fairly rich so you've always got pluses and minuses but just looking at the plants we've got in here, um, I would be a little bit reluctant to put steeple gigantia in a heavy wet soil, um, just because there is a higher chance of it not liking it. Mm -hmm. Erogrostis penicetums. Having said that, uh, we have customers all over the country and they will send me pictures of you know, <laughs> penicetum growing, not exactly in a bog, but in a very wet condition. Yeah. So plants want to grow primarily. Now obviously a clay soil is more nutrient rich and you talked about feeding grasses not too much so do you feed any of your grasses in this dry gravel border no. here? We haven't used any additional fertiliser we mulch we must yeah. bear that, that in mind uh, but we haven't used any additional fertiliser in probably 10 or 15 years in okay. the garden so, and this is a dry sandy soil in fact we smile sometimes because we do have one or two customers come and say you know what do I feed it with and there's a slight mild look of panic on their faces when you're saying you don't need to. Hmm. So what we're going to do is invent a Knoll Gardens grass fertiliser that will actually have nothing in it, <laughs> but it will keep those people happy because they better spread some around. I knew where you were going with that one. So <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good idea to me. My, my, my accountant thought it was a great idea. I yeah, I, I can see why he <laughs> might be happy with that. So when it comes to planting grasses, let's talk about actually planting mm -hmm. them. Any additions to the soil at that point, or are you just putting them into your garden soil, right plant, right place? Absolutely. Um, and again, I learned many, many years before I came here that rather than, you know, I, I think when my grandfather was it, was it, um, was it a, a penny plant in a five penny hole or, or so, something yes. like that? And, and yeah. you understand the logic that goes with that. Um, and if you're putting one plant in, that might be so. But when you're working profession and, and you're planting big areas, you can't deal with every single hole. What you need to do is to deal with the border as a whole, the area first, to make mm. sure that is suitable for planting so the whole area is prepared, and then the actual physical planting takes much less time. And because we do it that way, we do not individually treat the holes with anything. We just literally dig, pop it in. But I think I mentioned earlier, we always mulch. I hate to see bare soil now when it's finished, so we always mulch when we're finished. 
And what do you use as a mulch here? If I can, um, we get stable manure, but that's getting more and more difficult. Um, as you can probably see, we use a lot of bark because that mm. is easily a, a, a obtainable. I try to keep that on the paths and try to put something with a little more nutrient in on the borders. It's a bit more difficult. We've got gravel, of course. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind, if we look behind us at the Decennium border, um, you know, it's absolutely solid planting. When we cut that down in the spring, um, we leave all the stems and the old growth on the borders. So all the nutrient can in those stems that hasn't gone back to the plants is left on the border as a mulch and that breaks down and that in itself is slowly feeding the plants. So then the new growth comes up through the old stems, gets old hidden stems. away. Yeah. Let's talk about maintenance then, as mm -hmm. we've touched on that now. Yeah, yeah. Let's assume, when is the best time to plant a grass? Uh, I, I, I genuinely say like, um, when the border is ready. Okay. Uh, because well, I think rather than going for an artificial date in the calendar, mm, yeah. um, it's best to have your border and your soil ready to receive the plants. So rather than rushing the preparation to be better plant, you know, by the end of March, mm. um, we plant, as we might see over there, we've got an empty border that we're going to plant tomorrow. I mean, we've just missed August, winter, September, but planting in the height of summer, again, against my grandfather's original advice, um, is fine as long as you can water because the plants are active and want to grow. Um, the only caveats are that if you have that heavy wet soil that we talked mm. about a little while ago um, and particularly you were planting you know penicetums or steepers or that kind of thing I might leave that until the spring when the worst of the wet's dry uh, passed yeah. uh, whereas likewise of course if you're in a bit of a rain shadow a bit like we are here you might well plant in the autumn so it's got the winter to get established while there's moisture in the ground before it has to cope with the dry so like everything in gardening it depends on each situation as to the advice and what I might do. So there's a there's a certain amount of intuition in the planting and knowing. Intuition, common sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's some, um, I mean I was gonna say tear up the books that's not true because mine's great but, but I mean you know it, it's I think a lot of traditional horticulture sometimes spends too much time on dates and procedures and times and timetables I know yeah. it's how we work how, how true, we think yeah. but it's not actually the best you know it, it is it, you need intuition experience understanding and that you know a hugely available co commodity of common sense very good um, we talked about um, the planting when the when the border is ready mm -hmm. what other maintenance is required during the course of the season for grasses uh, during the course of the season for most of the deciduous group that we're looking at sort of more or less surrounding yep. us here nothing other than removing an odd weed we don't stake we don't deadhead you know etc etc um, so that would be dealt with in the spring the evergreen so if you look again behind us look at the steeper tenuissima or the cellar tenuissima depending on uh, how you wish to name it um, <laughs> That grows so quickly uh, and evergreens can be trimmed during the growing period if need needed. So again, we don't do it unless we have to, but if that looks is just about perfect now, but those heads of flower can get a bit heavy, heavy. wet, and it tends to flop and looks a bit messy, you can then cut those back to within an inch or so during the growing season, and they will start to regrow within 24 hours. That was cut down in about May, June time. And look at them already, they've shot up. Goodness me, because you hear of people combing through you nacella. You comb them, that's great. Yeah. I, I don't quite have time to go combing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, well, for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> but, but, um, and, they, uh, and that's not a problem at all. It's a perfectly legitimate technique where a little bit's going, but there comes a point when it's too heavy, and we tend to enjoy the display, and if it gets too, too bad, we will just go in, chop some or all of them down, and they start to reshoot. 
So again, that sort of spring maintenance, you, you know, the, the traditional approach when you sort of, everything is done in spring and then you just sit and enjoy it for the summer, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on the type of plant you're using as to when you do the maintenance. So we wouldn't touch those nacellas, those steepers during the winter, but we would cut them once or even twice during the growing period to look like that. Are there any other grasses that you might take that approach with? Yeah, uh, we can go and have a look when we go to the rain gardens, if, 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 if you like. Um, Largella nivea, which is another native yes, grass, yeah. um, that is beautiful in spring around Chelsea time, but can get to look a little bit messy and tired once it's finished flowering. Um, so its peak season is basically, you know, April and May. So, uh, well, a couple of months ago now, um, we chopped them back very hard, so in the middle of the growing season, but we chopped them back hard up comes a new whole set of rosetta foliage that looks beautiful for winter and spring then it will flower then we'll do the same thing again so its turn for annual maintenance is in may or june whereas the deciduous groups that we're looking at over there their turn is in march as they begin to wake up so talking about that how far down do you cut deciduous grasses? Another popular question. Yes, How far yes, do I yes, take them yeah, down? Yeah, yeah. People are afraid to go too far Absolutely. down. Absolutely, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, we always say to ground level or thereabouts, um, which is, uh, and I, on one of my classes, somebody did put their hand up once and say, could you define ground level? And you think, oh, interesting. <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> I, I think I might have said something very slightly flippant, but I wasn't necessarily on my best behaviour as I am now. I can't now. believe it now. No, I can't quite, believe it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but you understood, when, when you got to it, um, you understood what she was saying, the question was, because if you go to some gardens and places, and even advice, I think, in magazines occasionally, you will see them cut at 12 or 18 inches high yes. yeah. because you can't, because they don't want to cut the new growth, which mm. is understandable. But, like our lawns, we cut the new growth every week of the year. So a few inches, and I think it needs to be go down about to a few inches, an inch, whatever, because it's ugly, the old stems. Yeah. And the lower you go, the sooner the new growth will cover it. That is a popular misconception. I know a yeah. lot of people have said, I don't have want to cut any of the new growth because it will it ruin even it. Even on the little screen and all that with, with certain sayings saying, no, you, you know, avoid this. And I even have one customer, somewhere, I won't mention the area of the customer of, of, of the country, where she has a pair of secretaires, uh, quite a collection of miscanthus, and will take the stems out one at a time in order to avoid it. Now, I don't think she goes out much, if you know what I mean, so that's fine. Uh, uh, but we just chop level and off we go okay so we've chopped our grasses back yep, at yep. the beginning of the season yep, down yep, low yeah to ground level <laughs> to ground level, to ground level. <laughs> wherever uh, you define ground level wherever, that's where, where you go exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. um anything else maintenance wise we need to consider during the season um well we're often asked about division a again some of the actual uh, uh, uh you know more more traditional approaches to herbaceous borders in in, in general which this has a sort of a link to um is that every three years or so you need to lift and divide um that is not what we do here some of these miscanthus are probably 15 years or so old um lift and divide if you have to mm -hmm. um but it is not necessary to do so you know that that sort of naturalistic style the modern approach is you use plants that basically want to look after themselves that live a long time they're happy where you put them and so the maintenance level is is relatively minimal so talking of propagation mm -hmm. propagation from seeds 
Yeah, we tend to prefer to suggest that you tend to buy from somebody like us, of course, you know, there's much, uh, that's our preference. Uh, but most of our plants, if we look around again behind you, sorry, your neck in, we, we've got Miscanthus cindy, Miscanthus malepartus, Miscanthus flamingo over there. They are cultivars, mm. so they need to come from division. If you sowed the seed from those, goodness knows what you, you would get. But the Nacella tenuissima right in front of us yeah. is a species and that will come true from seed. So the most of our work quite seriously is in division and vegetative propagation because we deal with so many forms and cultivars. Just looking at that border again mm -hmm. which is a beautiful border the two grasses you just mentioned there's one tall miscanthus with the darker red Inflorescences? Yes, yeah, inflorescences, flowers, flowers, whatever you want to call them. Yes, yeah, that's malepartus. That's malepartus. So still one of the oldest cultivars, but one of the most upright and fabulous dark colour. Lovely, yeah, it's really my sort of colour there. It's beautiful, yeah, yeah. And, and if that wasn't enough, as that starts to fade, which is something else I think people don't always immediately get, is that depending on the time of year, these plants will have entirely different colorations. So those grasses will look entirely different in two months' time. Mm. They'll still be standing. Yeah. The red will have faded to silver and the green leaves will have gone to yellow or orange um, or sometimes red. And so you're still getting this variation. I love change in, in a garden. You know, almost daily, certainly weekly, you see the garden change. And I think that's, that's a very strong, powerful, exciting thing. I mean, the Miscanthus malepartus, that's what? Two, almost two and a half metres, possibly three? two metres, probably, and a little bit. And bearing in mind that everything is, you know, a foot or two uh, shorter than usual. We say two to two and a half, and mostly it gets closer to two and a half metres. Right. Meet metres. Just fabulous. When you think you cut it down in March, and by June, July, mm. it's up to two and a half metres. To watch that thing grow is just, it's just so fabulous. I never tire of that dynamic, you know, change. And standing alongside the Eupatorium, which looks glorious. Which Eupatorium is that? That's, that's straight. That, that's straight atropurpurea. It is, is which it? Is still that's... amongst the, the best. There are so many other forms, and they're all yeah. good. But that is straight atropurpurea. And can I? Is that Melinia at the front of the border? By Melinia, the... yeah, Arundinacea, or to give it its full name, Carulia subspecies, Arundinacea. Um, tall purple moorgrass. It is. Would you believe a UK native? Um, which is very pretty, not really noticed in the first half of the year. Suddenly no. it starts to put its flowers up, and by the time, you can see there's a few more over there, by the time we get to late autumn, the entire plant is a strong butter yellow. Wonderful. Neil, can we move to another area of the garden yes, of and course. look at the Why damper not? areas? Let's go and do that. Thank you. Okay, we've moved to the dry meadow and the rain gardens now different range of grasses and I can see the grasses in front of me are actually sat in water. What are these Neil? This is Carex uh, grass ally, this is Carex divulsa which yep. is an English uh, native um, as are all these grasses here. Um, it's a relatively new project. Uh, the dry meadow is, is a palette of plants that really need the dry and the sun and what we put alongside it, partly for practical reasons to catch overflow and flood water, um, is a series of individual um, swales, I mean you can basically call them a ditch, but swale sounds so much smarter, swales. doesn't it? Swale is good. Swales. Four swales which are linked together through pipes that together make up a rain garden, which basically a rain garden is really as one or more holes that catches excess water and lets it go out basically slowly rather than flooding the, the place. And as such is as practical in a small London semi-detached as it is in a, 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 a big larger, town centre. Yeah. Um, and so 
we actually have native grasses here in this section but what I love so much the reason I started there is this practical side of catching the water controlling the flood bits because mm. we are dry but like so many dry places when it rains you know this climate change it rains a lot yeah and so this kind of um, landscape feature shall we say uh, um, is actually quite good if you like for the so-called climate change because we can cope with dry and we can cope with wet but on a more interesting scale too from a gardening point of view I can grow such a different range of plants here in the swale which gets watered as opposed to the dry meadow which is what three or four me four meters away and right, I find that yeah, fascinating yeah, yeah. and even then we are already beginning to record a different set of wildlife in the wet areas to the dry areas so we are creating multiple habitat as well you know for plants as well as wildlife it's absolutely fascinating so what sort of wildlife are you likely to find i in knew the you were going to ask me that <laughs> different from the dry meadow <laughs> that will do me fine <laughs> uh, my memory as always has gone completely blank but i mean for example uh, which doesn't really answer your question uh, but uh, well i mean the dragonflies and things of course particularly like this and we'll see them zooming around here yeah. of course they'll zoom over this as well but since we've had this dry meadow in um, we've actually had a green-eyed bumblebee, oh. a green, no, green-eyed flower bee. Now, when somebody first told me about that, I thought they were slightly <laughs> having me on because I thought I'm not sure I've ever heard under the affluence of interval. Absolutely, yeah. But it turns out to be a um, solitary bee. Looks like a little tiny bumblebee. I mean, it does have the said green eyes, which is quite fascinating. It's a beautiful little thing, I've not and heard it's of that come one. into the garden ever since we planted this meadow. And it likes in particular the Napitas and the Asters. Well, I know. So that. we've created a habitat for our, our own purposes, you know, for our own reasons. And wildlife that was obviously in the area said, well, hang on a minute, I actually like this or I find this to my liking now. So they have moved in. And we now even have a little dry bank just over there, which is not mulched because, um, like many solitary bees, uh, the green eyed flower bees like a bit of bare soil with which to build their little homes and okay. hollows. Wow. So it's a learning curve to me yeah, as well. You know, course, yeah. I did this for one reason, but you suddenly find that all sorts of other things move in and yeah. take advantage. And that is what is so lovely about the wider aspects of gardening. So within these swales, what other grasses would cope with these wet conditions? Yeah, we have got a, a, a range of plants quite deliberately because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand, uh, bearing in mind who we are. On our left here, number one, rain garden, as we call it, we have Deschampsia, mm -hmm. uh, which again is a native to the UK and likes wet conditions. Kerex divulsa we spoke about. Yeah. Lugula nivea, do you remember we spoke earlier about them being cut back? Well, there they're starting to regrow. See these wonderful white um, leaves yes. that, that, that are coming up. And Calamagrostis varia and Ajuncus, all of which are native plants and will cope with being immersed in water for some time. Um, if we then look to number two and number three, we've got carexes and sedges, a few more lugulas, uh, which are rather lovely, so it's a different effect. Uh, then we go to number three, which is almost covered by that effervescent mass of Deschampsia gold tower. There's other things in there as well, but isn't that beautiful? That, That's the wet bit. Yeah. You can see where the dry takes over because the poas are poking their noses mm. above the grasses. But as soon as you get down to the wet bit, 
you can see the type of plant changes and I think that's a super lesson for us all as gardeners to learn you know that right plant right place this is what it means so we talked about clay soil earlier so yep. some of these are going to be these more... on the whole yeah yeah your deschampses can have a bit of a reputation of being short-lived in a wettish clay soil they will live a lot longer and be a lot happier than in a dry now I started off my uh, grass collection with right. deschamps oh, right, okay. in a in a sandy Bournemouth soil. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Short a little bit short yeah, yeah. 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 I but, mean, you 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 can divide them, and then they do another few years and all yeah. it. But it's a level of work. Um, the other one in front of us, which is a bit sneaky, it, this is millennia. This particular one is overdam, but we have three types of millennia here, um, and you can see this upright habit. Again, it is another UK native, um, and it is such a fabulous landscape. You know, garden plant as well as being a native and providing cover. And it will cope, it transitions from the wet and the dry. So um, like all things in nature, you know, nature does not work in boxes. There's always this range of tolerances. Mm. And so we are trying to show that the millennia will cope with the wet, but it will also move into the drier areas. I'm going to ask now about Overdam. Yeah, millennia overdam. There's yes. Calamagrostis overdam. Yes. Where does that yep. overdam name come overdam from? Overdam is a Danish nursery, well-known Danish nursery. Uh, I think Paul Peterson, I think, is the gentleman's name. Forgive okay. me. Um, and yet named after that. Okay, thank you. That's all right. No, where should, where should we head off to now? Well, um, we could go and look at, um, perhaps, should we go and look at, um, uh, it's a dry area, but if we go and look at the taller uh, mill end borders, uh, where there's a good few more feet of growth. Sounds good to me. Lead the way. Okay, this way. So, tell us about the mill end border. What, what sort of grasses are we growing here? Okay, well, this, this little job here, which is about four metres tall, um, is a Rondodanax. It is shorter than usual because of the spring, would you believe? It's difficult wow. to believe. And this is, I think this is the one I always love to talk about because it's cut back in March and it is four metres or so mm. by June. I mean, it's just incredible. When you start the season, you can stand at this end of, of the border, look across the garden and almost see the car park or at least the entrance wall. By the time you get to June, there is so much growth in the way, you can hardly see where the, where the path goes. Now, I tend not to use the word prairie style too much um you know but but basically prairie can either be tall or, or or short my guess is that um a sort of a stylized prairie style that we might talk about here in the uk are the taller grasses like miscanthus and panicums and some of the big perennials like heliopsis asters persicarias yeah, and we have deliberately got quite a narrow path so you almost feel you're making your way through and quite genuinely rubbing shoulders with the plants and so eye level, you are looking, you know, and above, you're looking at and enjoying the plants. You're not looking down. If anything, you're looking up. And if you think where we've been in the dry meadow, the rain gardens, the gravel garden, this yeah. again is a different feel to what we've experienced so far. And the planting around here, we talked about the persicarias. Which yeah. persicarias have you got this here? Particular got some lovely one, one. This one is rosier. Uh, there's orange field. Uh, there's taurus. Uh, there are quite a few, as you probably know. Yeah. Um, Fat Domino and Adiglifrosca, of course, is really lovely. They're all beautiful, um, and they're always so popular um, with bees uh, and, and butterflies. It's quite amazing. So with the Arundo, a striking plant, yeah, yeah. what sort of conditions does Arundo favour? If you're growing it in warmer climates, it can almost become a little bit aggressive. And, mm. and you, you will see it perhaps you know, if we ever get to go on holiday again to warmer climates. Um, you will see it in quite big patches. O 
over here it's only just tolerating our conditions so while it is not a small plant as you can see mm. that's been in for 10 years and so it, it makes a big clump but it, it doesn't run so sunny again all these big plants need sun um, and relatively dry i.e not too wet during the winter okay and we've got some catalpas. Are these catalpas? This particular one is polonia, but we've got catalpas around the corner. That's yeah, right, polonias yeah. are very similar. Um, these beautiful leaves. And if you can just see there, we pollard them back. So every spring yep. we cut all the old growth off. It looks ugly the day we've done it, but then you get these massive leaves, which I think go so beautifully with the narrow of the grass and the perennials. So looking here, it's colour, it's texture. You've got the different heights, the heights, variation yeah, in heights, yeah, which yeah, is you've yeah. got the backdrop of the, the hedge yeah. around, which keeps a nice yeah. microclimate in here as well. And the paths are bark mulched. Bark mulched. So we try very hard, although you can see the difference, of course, we try not to have edges. I don't mean hedges, edges. Mm. Um, because I think I, th I think we divide our garden spaces up too much. You know, And the more you divide it, the smaller it, it, it looks. In essence, a pathway, if you look at nature, a pathway is basically a space where plants aren't. So when we laid this out, we literally had no kind of edge, um, and we defined the path by not putting plants in. And you've got the same material running across the border and the path. Because I remember coming here years ago when these were grass borders. Oh, my And gosh, I was really, horrified really? Yeah, when yeah. you took the grass up. But uh, now I can see and I understand yeah. how much better, more effective these are. I think it's more beautiful. Yeah. I think it's effective for much longer. Yeah. And it is a fraction of the amount of work. And even these days, now that we're thinking about, you know, environmentally conscious approach, low impact and all the rest of it, less lawnmower, less fuel, you know, less everything, more plant, less impact. Um, and of course, now we have the no mow may, which is encouraging that practice right. of stepping okay. back, yeah, not yeah, mowing yeah, the lawn, yeah, letting yeah. things go grow away go, naturally to encourage. Absolutely. There's so many different things that you can do. And I, I think generally what I've found in, in being here for the last you know, <coughs> 27 years um, is that people are actually, most people, are very open to new ideas, but you have to show them. If all mm. you present is cut grass, bedding plants and trimmed hedges, that's what you're going to get. But if you actually offer other examples, a lot of people, an awful lot of people, are really excited and interested to do the same thing. And the lovely thing is, is aside from the aircraft, we've got the Bournemouth Air we've Show. We've got the Bournemouth Air Show, haven't we? Just yes. a bit going on. I don't think they're going to land here. I think you're all let's, right. Let's hope not. But well, you can no hear the Arundo just in the breeze. Just it's beautiful, isn't it? Sort of it, noise. it is nice. Yes, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, again, a gentle summer's day or the or the autumn, even during the winter, when admittedly I'm more wrapped up. But when it, when the when the wind is blowing, these things are moving. But mm. the noise is quite wonderful. And I think it takes me back to my childhood. I'm regressing now. You understand? <laughs> um, when you were on the coast, I, mean, I was very lucky to live by, by the coast. And windy days, you know, grass rustling, plenty of space, that natural laid-back feel. Um, I still find it very beautiful. Something quite soothing about it. Just very listening soothing. to that then in the background. It's Abs yeah. just nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, where should we head now? Um, sh uh, dry shade, should we talk about dry Let's shade? Let's go to dry Let's shade, a the difficult dry one shade. for some gardeners. Absolutely, difficult for everybody, but um, again, I think the good news is that it, it's plantable. I mean, if just while we stand here for two seconds, if you can see the trees and shrubs we've got at the background mm. there, we have a symphytum, this particular one is called Norwich Sky, and what we found so useful is that it copes with dry shade, it loves dry shade, 
and it flowers in the spring when all the shrubs haven't got their leaves on. The bumblebees absolutely love this thing. Then it goes quiet, keeps the ground um, nice and tidy and weed free until next season when it starts to look good again. Lovely. So we're really using nice. it in all sorts of places, yeah. under big trees and yeah. shrubs, in odd corners. Because again, we believe in covering the ground with foliage, form, shape for as long as possible. Again, before we go to the dry shady mm -hmm. area, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have contacted me. I was always afraid of dry shade, but ended up with a dry shady garden God, years yes. ago. Yeah. It can be done. It can it's... be done, but you just have to be, I think the more acute the condition, the more specific your planting has to be. Exactly. Let's go and have a look. Okay. So here we are in the dry shady area. What sort of plants have you got here? Uh, well, the symphytum, you see, we've popped a few symphytum in that, that we mentioned earlier. Um, that's only been in a little, little while. Um, Epimedium next door to it. Of course, the epimediums yep. have a reputation for being slow, but my gosh, are they hardy and tough. They are and tough. Once you've got them, they are there forever. You see under our cinnamon-barked myrtle just there, there's mm. a complete cover. Been there for years. I don't think it needs a minute's work a year. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and you get that lovely <clears throat> flush on some of the foliage on the epimediums it's gorgeous, in spring, it? that yeah, lovely yeah. red flush. Absolutely. And I, I was always told, if, if you read the books, um, you should cut the old foliage off just before the flowers come. Yeah. Now, I think in the 20 odd years I've been here, I've managed that once, if you know what I mean. Uh, um, and it's always too late because by the time I see the flowers, They're it's too late. Too high. And to be honest, while that is pretty, and if that's what you're after, it, it's fine, but it's, it, it's a level of work I'm not sure we really need to do. It's beautiful anyway. Mm. You see some of the flower, but the foliage is there all the time. So I've given up worrying, I think. Uh, that's a good tip, actually. I, I must admit, mm. I do religiously go down sort of March time, just yeah. as they're beginning, the flowers I'm are beginning to creep impressed. up. I'm very impressed, yes, yes. But we're always say, going yes. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what varieties have you got here? Um, you know? We've got sulfurium, um, warliens. Which all yes, yes, yeah, yeah. An, an, an orangey one on, on the lawn. So they're all pretty much the same, really. I think sulfurium is probably, which is that one over there, it's probably got the most glossy foliage, mm. at least here in this situation, you know, sort of thing. But then if we move on one, as my sort of relatively recent new favourite is, uh, uh, I think we're competing <laughs> with the red arrows, actually, and I'm not sure that much competition is there, really, but there you are. We, we, we're advantaged. Sometimes we do, actually, if, if the weather's nice, we get a wonderful display from the red arrows on their way to and coming back coming from back the from air the, show, yeah. which is a nice place to be, as long as you're not trying to record a programme. <laughs> uh, but Asta Divericatus next yeah. door Lovely. Um, is a great, I think it's now a Eurebia, because obviously you know, all the plants change their names. Yep. We won't go there. Uh, but I still call it Aster at the moment, Aster divericatus. But look how many thousands of cheery little white flowers there are. You can see the bees and butterflies things are loving those things. It is in dry shade. It's surrounded by several trees, so it's got tree roots everywhere. It likes a dry, woody soil, and it copes with it beautifully. I mean, what more could you want for dry shade? This is this area, this whole area is dry shade. We have shrubs, we have epimediums, asters, symphytums. Uh, just round the corner, the other side of the uh, prunus, uh, there is Calamagrostis brachytrica, which yes. is the Korean feather grass. Um, a new addition to my garden. Uh, we, we, it's a really lovely plant. 
uh, and each year we're putting it in a slightly worse drier shady condition okay. and it seems to be doing it there it is it's only what three meters away from Illyriodendron that must mm-hmm. be 80 foot plus um, and it's just coming in into flower we've just planted another lot in even more intense dry shade a few weeks ago so we'll see how that behaves so true grass is generally sunny and open you know the miscanthus the panicums most of the calamagrostis want little bit of shade is okay but mostly sunshine but brachytrica does seem to have this ability to grow in relatively dry shade so what there's this a limit space. but yeah. what's this space yeah is there a when it comes to brachytrica is mm. there a, a minimum number of hours it, it should have good oh, question oh, i don't actually know, don't know I, I mean this here this wonderful group group here might see an hour or two of direct sunshine from there i think it's the light rather than direct sunshine Mm, mm. that's important and this is open shade so the tree cover is some meters above um you know and while that doesn't affect the soil that's always dry and rooty um it's open rather than dark shade i don't think it would like that dark shade wonderful okay I, I, I love the aster. It's such it's a pretty just, thing. It's just it? a sea of we're, white stars there. We're gradually planting more and more of it. You know, it, it never gets to be too much, um, and we keep coming back and sneaking bits off the back while we plant another group. You know, which is which is another nice thing to do because once you've got so many of these plants that behave like this, you can go in, break a few more bits off, and go and plant another group if, if you need it, which is rather super. And I think the nice thing about gardening is we can push the limits. We can try things in different areas, see how they go. What's the worst that can happen? Absolutely. I think you you have to. I think we might have said earlier, plants have a range of tolerances. So we talk about, you know, is it wet, is it dry? Well, there's all sorts of ranges of wet through to dry. Mm. And plants want to grow. I think that's what we have to bear in mind, that plants want to grow. So while our best efforts is to try and work out the conditions that they like best there is a whole shoulder on both sides of the ideal where they will still grow successfully. And that, as you say, is where the experimentation comes, comes in. in. That brachytrica that we planted, I hope it's forgiven me, there's about 15 <laughs> plants up there. It was quite rooty, quite shady. But I have every expectation that they might do. They might not be quite as exuberant as down here, but does that matter if they're doing Absolutely. well enough? If they're, if they're living and they mm-hmm. look good, then push Success. the boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are we going to head to now? Um, that's a very good question. Um, shall we go and look at the dragon garden, or no. perhaps even the Hakonocloas first under let's the look, shade? Yeah, let's look at the Hakonocloas. Okay. Okay, so we're now in what's called the bark circle. So, yeah. And we've used got to be a circle many to, years ago. Yes, it's, it's plants have um, rather changed the shape. It's evolved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Hakonocloa, and again, a dry, shady area. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, this is Hakonocloa all gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you can see, the individual beautiful shape of these things is so fabulous. We've got samurai next door. Um, they are beautiful um, growing pots, sun or, or, or shade. They will cope with sun or shade, mostly, but they do like the dry soils. They do not like wet soils. So it's another thing that you need to bear in mind. The only thing is that the all gold, being like so many all gold foliage plants, will burn in strong sunshine um, and so we try and plant it where it never sees the direct sun okay um, and so that's the hack on the clothes they're great very long-lived so Next, under the base of a tree is yeah, ideal ab- absolutely I, 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 I do I mean you know the biggest and heaviest of trees it might be very slow growing but in this kind of situation here that, that, that we've got they cope with tree roots very well 
And the you, so you've got the all gold, but yep. planted next to it is the samurai, samurai which is a mid green. It's basically a green. It goes green this kind of year, it, 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 this time of year. It tends to be a sort of a white and green variegation in the spring and early summer, and depending on the year as to whether it goes a little bit more green or, or stays white, every year seems to be a bit different. So adjacent to the Hakonokloa all gold, we have pheasant grass in front of us. Yes, yes. Um, Steeper Arundinacea? It or... used to be steeper Arundinacea, but um, now... somebody decided that was way too complicated, so they've given it the, the much easier to pronounce name of Anamanthali Lessoniana. Much nicer, isn't it? I'd, I'd love to meet the man who did that, the <laughs> person who did that. Uh, but anyway, it is um, similar to the Hakonokloa in that it needs dry soils. So it's mm-hmm. a dry soil specialist, sun or shade. Um, it's absolutely fine. It is shorter lived, whereas the Hakonokloa will do 20 years plus. This tends to do three to five years, but it is much quicker growing. And you often find this plants with shorter lifespans, like annuals, for example, have to grow faster because they have less time. Um, and so this grows quicker, but doesn't last as long. And as you can see at this time of year, it will produce masses and masses of tiny pink flowers mm. that are so enthusiastically produce that they almost cover the entire plant with flower absolutely fabulous i have to say i like that it's almost like gossamer on top of the grass it's amazing isn't it it is but they do self-seed don't they quite readily they do again because we mulch we don't see a terrific problem with that no but again it's a question of management a bit like the nacella the steeper tenuissima that we talked about early Mm. uh earlier that has a three to five year lifespan you can divide it but as some of the older ones die out, as we do with this anamanthaly, we let one or two of the seedlings stay, and so you get a community of plants. Yeah. And with the, with the seed heads on the pheasant grass, they just pull away when you need to sort of take them away. It's they quite pull good, away quite gently. It's quite therapeutic. Yeah. It's quite. It's very convenient of the plant to be so thoughtful, <laughs> isn't it? Really? <laughs> well, I, while I remember, yeah, yeah. let's talk about pests and diseases and grasses. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. We usually have a fair bit to talk about in these plant specials that I do, but how about grasses? Not really, basically. Um, I mean, the biggest pest is probably um, a deer or a rabbit that will come in and eat grass. Mm. Um, In terms of actual um, diseases, those kind of things, um, you don't really see it. We never have to deal with with uh, aphids for example sometimes you might see an aphid on a grass or two but that's usually because of a close by perennial or something or other so it's really not a problem so by and large um, they are trouble free and then if you just see next the anamanthia i'm sorry i should have mentioned this this is a name that's even more beautiful this is a fire pogan planus capus which is much nicer than the name suggests Um, planted because it was so dry shade uh, and it's it's almost an impossible to kill ground cover you can see a new lawn of it we've planted a meadow that's about a year or so old um, gradually coming together Um, this original planting here has probably been in for a decade or so and is one of the few plants that we have had to do nothing to. We probably knock a few leaves off from the trees in the autumn, but other than that, it stays evergreen 365 days of the year. And of course, a lot of people will recognise its black cousin, Nigrescens. Yeah, the one with Nigrescens, as if the name wasn't long enough. You have <laughs> Just to add that on, on the end of it. Twice the size of the plant, yeah. Neil, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Before we go... Mm. A fantastic website we need to reference and a, a lot of material, uh, a lot of information on there. What are the key things on the website and what is the website address for everybody? Uh, well, we're at Um 
we have a range of sort of 300 plus grasses and then some more perennials and things all of which should have lots of I- Im- images because i think pictures these days are really key you know Powerful. our whole gardening is all about aesthetics about visual and so we try and put a lot of pictures on um the descriptions the plant descriptions should be helpful there should be multiple pictures for many of those and if particular you like to go to the galleries which i should have mentioned yeah. earlier there's those talking about dry shade there's the maintenance so you can see the stages that we recommend there's even a small video on how to cut the deciduous borders down um, like i said dry shade um, grasses for informal screens all sorts of different aspects we try and put galleries together to give some kind of explanation to people about how you might be able to do things. And of course, if people want to buy grasses, they can also head to your website as well. We're very happy for them to come and buy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Somebody's got to pay for this garden somehow. <laughs> but uh, what I would recommend most of all is come to the garden. Come and have a look because at this time of year, it's probably at its peak. But throughout the whole year, it's a beautiful place to come to. So come and visit. <laughs> yeah, we're th- that, that's super. I mean, September and October and even into November, sometimes depending on the season, is when we see most visitors. Because, uh, you know, it, it's getting around that, well, just look at this. You know, this group of plants, what we work with, is really at its best in the second half of the year. Exactly. And, of course, if people want even more information, your book, Designing with Grasses... <laughs> Yes, thank you. Yes, we we still have a few copies, as they say, left, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, uh, um, people have been very kind about it. It's sold quite well. But um, I think it's just a practical guide as to how you might be able to do things, you know. Uh, I'm basically a practical kind of... I am a gardener, first and foremost, and I have to say, rather proud of it. I don't want really to be anything else. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to come and spend the afternoon with you and, and the garden is looking tip-top. Thank you, Neil. You're very kind, Marina. It's been my pleasure. Well, thank you for joining me and Neil today. I hope you enjoyed it. And there are photographs of the garden on my show notes along with links to Neil's website if you need more information. And in the meantime, I will see you very soon. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.